welcome back to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series currently on NBC and based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I'm Sean Coletti. My co-host is Kate Kulzik, TV editor at soundonsight.org and writer at theavclub.com. And our guest this week, returning for a second time uh, from Life on the Swing sets, uh, Eat the Rudecast, where many of our listeners will know him from, and of, also from soundonsight.org, uh, where he was contributing to the Twin Peaks podcast. Uh, Cooper Beckett, welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It was a great episode. It was a great episode, and hopefully this will be a great podcast, but just right at the forefront as a uh, <laughs> a warning to listeners, we are already late on this one, which we apologize for, but it was through an unbelievable uh, maelstorm of horrific terribleness. We determined and... that our computers and the internet and life didn't want us to record this one because it hoped then that maybe the show wouldn't end for now. So like a child hiding their shoes so they don't have to go home Yeah, at the end of a party? Yeah. Pretty much. That. Yeah, it was like a, a culmination, like you're saying, <laughs> Sean, of various things all going wrong in the right sequence to prevent us from recording until we are now. But hopefully the wait will have been worth it. Yeah, apologies to Matt Damon. We were going to have him on, but I know, our, you know, stuff just didn't work out. It just oh, out of D. time. Yeah, every time. So with that in mind, uh, there's usually some process to all of this where I do editing and that kind of thing where you don't have to be subjected to all the awkward pauses and ums and ahs and corrections and random planes that will fly over this house because that happens constantly as in right now <laughs> but we're just going to record this straight through this is very improv very much like uh, Kate and myself's uh, earlier podcast this season where we were down in San Diego so just be prepared for that we're doing it live <laughs> doing it live as live as this is our design will ever get uh well i guess that's not true but i, I at least edited that san diego podcast so i guess th <laughs> this is close <laughs> it's 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 gonna be fun it's gonna be fun it will be fun and this week we'll be talking about season three episode 12 my god we are almost near the end here uh the number oh. of the beast is 666 Written by Jeff Flamin, Angela Lamana, Brian Fuller, and Steve Lightfoot, and directed by Guillermo Navarro. And plenty to talk about in this episode. Usually, uh, I begin with a little bit of Hannibal by the numbers, but because of all of the, the craziness, uh, the only thing that I can really give you guys this week is that uh, there have been two times uh, on This Is Our Design this season where I've mentioned we've had really long scenes, and this one takes the cake. It, it does extend beyond the commercial break and it also includes a very short time jump in which we don't see what Chilton's saying to the camera as Francis is recording. We get that later. But in total, uh, the Dollar Hyde and Chilton sequence is 13 minutes and 35 seconds, which is extraordinary wow. for a single episode uh, of Hannibal. Um, and of course, we'll be talking about that. Uh, as a reminder to listeners, feel free to get in contact with us via sound on site, via Twitter, via email. This is our design 666 at gmail.com. We really appreciate it. We have been getting plenty of feedback. Uh, we got a rating on iTunes from earlier this season. We also greatly appreciate that. So keep them coming as we reach the finish line. But let's go ahead and dive right in. And, and this was uh, the, the main thing I talked about in my review, uh, or at least that I be began with, was that over these past three episodes, it seems like, at least for me as a viewer, um, there has been a centerpiece to these episodes, and just two episodes ago, 
It was the Tiger sequence last week. It was the home invasion this week. I think that, uh, as the, the brief handbook of the numbers would suggest, that the Chilton and Dollarhide sequence is very important to this episode. So I wanted to begin talking about that. Uh, and Cooper, this is a very different version of this than we've had it in is. previous iterations uh, of the, the series. Uh, did you want to maybe talk about that and use that as a, a jumping board for showing why the differences in this one make sense for Brian Fuller's version of this. Well, it's interesting because it, it's, you know, in, in the uh, previous material, the person who died here was Freddie Lowndes. And uh, it's because of the exact same situation, the setup by the FBI, and Freddie Lowndes winds up in a wheelchair on fire. And, you know, Sean, uh, you and I commiserated via direct message on Twitter when it, when I said, I need to talk to somebody about spoilers. <laughs> and it's because, really, this was coming down to either Chilton was going to be in that scene or Alana was going to be in that scene. I thought there's really no way they're going to redo Freddie Lowndes in that way. And so it came down to, okay, who's it going to be? And we were getting closer and closer to the end of the season. And it's like, why bring Raul Esparza back if you're only going to use him for one, maybe two episodes, unless you give him something spectacular? And we got spectacular here. I mean, there there is a lot of debate over whether or not it makes sense that Dollaride went after Chilton, who seemed to have the least amount to do with that article. Uh, depending on how you believe the article was written, was it attributed to Chilton? Was it attributed to Will? Um, is Dollaride blaming Freddie Lowndes? Or did Hannibal just say, this guy, kill him? Regardless, I think, I think it's one of the many things on Hannibal that I'm willing to overlook simply because Rollis Sparza is this episode's MVP, and to have him playing against an astonishing performance from Richard Armitage in, in probably the most horrifying thing that has ever been on network television. I was blown Let, away. Let's talk about what you said, uh, that the question of, does this make sense? The dollar high would go after children because I think that that's probably the, the best way to start really interrogating it. Mm -hmm. Um, because it is a deviation and now we wonder, uh, would this version of dollar high go after him? And I think that, we at least know that Francis Dollarhide is uh, an incredibly intelligent person, very astute, very insightful. Um, so it would make sense at least that he would know or at least sniff out part of the trap that Will is setting and would be prepared for the fact that Will would be surrounded. Um, how, how does all of this filter into your, I guess, logical reading of the sequence, Kate? Well, it's interesting, of course, to hear about all of this, because when you, and not knowing the source material, <laughs> um, I figured some of this was similar and some of this wasn't. And um, uh, certainly when I saw some of the reaction on Twitter, that was interesting for me to see. Um, <laughs> and we'll go, we'll get into the whys of some of this. I, I would love to dive into some of the gender politics and some of the other, you know, elements behind it. First of all, I just think it's fun that instead of Freddie, it's Frederick. Uh, that's yeah. just a nice little fun coincidence uh, and a bit of, uh, I guess, happenstance. You know, it worked out as a nice, nice, neat little touch there. But um, I have no difficulty accepting what is presented. 
here uh, because of the way that the scene is written. The sequence is written with Dollarhide specifically quoting things that Will had said and saying, telling Chilton, you said specific quote of what Will had said. Um, I read that as Chilton was was attributed uh th- those lines were attributed to chilton by mm. freddie so while will is involved in this you know piece that she's writing up and and you know we get i'm sure that there are certain things that will says in in the piece as well those specific lines are attributed to chilton and that so i, I have no trouble accepting that also this episode makes a very big point of the he goes after the pets first uh detail and so when we have f- first uh the zoom in on the picture um of of uh chilton and will and it seems like at first when you're first watching it oh we're enjoying the contrast in their expressions because chilton has no clue what he's getting himself into and will is very grim and then you realize no actually you're zooming in on the hand on the back uh of of chilton's uh chilton's back you know, on second watch, that adds you know significance to that, as well as having first will express this was this intentional on my part question to Bedelia, and then having Chilton say, "You knew he would do this. You patted me like a pet." Wow. Um, I the way that that all comes together, it's they're doing some heavy lifting, and as soon as you start thinking about it, uh, I won't say too much because clearly at, on this podcast we don't think you can think about this show too much. <laughs> As you should start examining and breaking it open a bit more, uh, you can see the work. You can see the heavy lifting. You see the strings a little bit. But I didn't have a hard time accepting it because of the strength of those two performances, like you guys have said, and also because of, uh, you know, the way it ties into the themes of this season and of this series. The notion of this as um, a step in Will's direction towards Hannibal, of his manipulation of people and in even while he is uh, in no way enamored of Hannibal at this point, uh, we're supposed to believe, you know, is there something lingering? We'll get into that too, I'm sure. But um, it's not intentional. He's not trying to be like Hannibal at all. But that that threat is still there. I'm willing to to really give this a lot more leeway than maybe uh, I would if that weren't a recurring theme of the series. The notion of children being a pet is something, of course, that the, the series has fun with a lot of the time he's now been disemboweled he's been shot in the face and now he's been lit on fire uh, still this, kicking he's still kicking <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's it is kind of easy to sit back and, and watch a performance like Asparza's and just be blown away by it and then after the fact be like ah that's all the crap that they put children through that's a lot of fun but when you actually see his charred body uh th- this is a little step further i think and now i wonder if if the series is making a point now that it's getting back to the idea of how horrific the violence on this series really is at its core, we see as Will is watching the replay of what's happening, um, as soon as Dollarhide calls over the couch in a very creepy gesture and, and starts attacking Chilton, uh, he he kind of just shudders and goes into himself. And this affects Will in ways that we saw season one stuff affect Will back when he was first really starting to work for the FBI in, in his role um, as, uh, as what is his position? His profiler. And, Sean, and so, can I speak to that one moment real quick? Yeah, go for it. Uh, you compared it to season one, and did you notice Jack says a very similar thing before Will sees Chilton? 
than he did before Will sees the angels. Mm-hmm. Prepare yourself. It's, yeah, it's basically get ready. It's a mess. Right. And I yeah. thought that was, I felt call back there for sure. Um, yes, and I completely agree with it now that you've said that. And um, the, the point, I guess, was that uh, are we supposed to maintain that position of, oh, messing with Chilton again, or is this supposed to be shit's getting serious and that needs to be the consideration at this point? It could be Brian Fuller scolding us for being so gleeful about Chilton. It it just seems like it's really hard to revel in this in the same way that it we is. can have fun with the other things. If they wanted us to revel, we wouldn't have seen his face get torn off. Yeah. Uh, he would have he could have still been torched, but he we wouldn't have seen that violence and had it presented in that way uh was that when i was watching that scene it was it was very hard to watch and i had to watch about five times to catch some of the scoring notes <laughs> which was not pleasant um it, it really struck me this is a show that presents violence and presents gore and very gruesome events and finds ways to make them beautiful in some manner, in some way, even if it's just the lighting, even if it's uh, the 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 scoring, even if it's uh, the costuming. Somehow, they they find a way to make horror simultaneously uh, gruesome and also beautiful. And they don't do that at all here. They do not help you with this scene at all. It's ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think, when are other times in the series that they have taken this approach? Because there must be at least one um, for, you know, chosen and, and approached in that same manner, manner for the same effect. But I'm having a really hard time thinking well, think of if, what it would if be. If you take what, what Sean was saying uh, a little further, the penultimate episode last season also had a huge chunk of someone's face removed. And we were gleeful about it because it was an awful man getting his just desserts. Well, and in shadow and yeah. with and, the, and yeah, and presented as comedic because he's not screaming. He's making jokes because right. he's out of his mind on, on the, the tea. But um, this doesn't give you any release. This I mean, because I, I mentioned the score, the score drops way down. Uh, like the most prominent part of the scoring are Chilton screams. I think that it highlights the the various ways that the series does portray violence, and we've we've talked uh, on about this in the past. And what we were struck with immediately in season one was the artistry of it, and that's certainly the way that it presented itself. the The gruesomeness of the violence um, was a little bit offset by the presentation of it, and the full effect of it we felt in the aftermath and what Will was going through after having been exposed to this stuff. Uh, and then later, as the series goes on, we do get stuff like Mason cutting his nose off, um, things that should just be absolutely stomach-churning, or uh, last season, or keep thinking of it as last season, it was this season, yeah. um, the, the eel going into children's mouth, uh, children's mouth, uh, Mason's mouth. Moments like these, which are horrific on paper, uh, we can view them in a different frame of mind and have a different emotional reaction to it than we normally would otherwise. So that's two ways. And I think this one, and, and you asked, Kate, what other instances 
have been like this. The only thing that I could think about where I kind of had to step back and be like, holy shit, this is actually really bothersome, was in the first episode of this Red Dragon arc when we see uh, Will go through the Leeds house and reenact what had happened there. It's a, it's still the same horrific level of violence. It's just, again, the presentation of it is different. So I agree that we... It, if it had just been light chilling on fire and rolling down the hill, then maybe we could have had a fun with that. Um, but because of the scene that we get with Dollar fighting him, uh, that that takes it into a different context. And it, I think it falls in line with that. This is really supposed to bother us. And I think that it, it succeeds in that. Yes, this is episode 12. This is penultimate episode of the season, uh, mm-hmm. if, if not the series, depending on which level of self-delusion you are currently operating under. Uh-huh. I prefer season for now um well de Laurentiis company is officially calling it the season finale yeah yeah that helps sure i'll take it <laughs> i <laughs> would take it even if they weren't um but <laughs> this is their way of signaling no we're playing for permanent stakes here you thought children getting shot in the head was permanent eh, we can write around that him having his face cut off uh and you know he's not dead but He's, you know, this is not something he can, you know, put a little makeup over and a contact lens and pretend is A-OK. You also brought up uh, issues of gender politics, which I, which I think is another interesting avenue for examining this. Did you want to talk a little bit about um, what you meant by how this kind of does things differently? Oh, sure. I, I just think that this is, um, when we talk about why is it Chilton and can we accept that, um, as soon as... You gender swap uh, Alana instead of Alan, yes, in the original, and um, Freddy for Freddy. And with the show's mandate to um, not indulge in or or glorify violence against women, um, then it just seemed pretty clear to me that it wasn't going to be Alana and it wasn't going to be Freddy Lowndes for those reasons. And so that leaves you with Chilton. And that's, you know... And in, in the original, this is not a concern because in the original, Freddie Lowndes is a man. So you don't have that extra element of terrorizing women and especially that connection with um, the dragon having this fascination with maternal figures. And so by having these other two characters who could theoretically be involved um, be gender swapped from the source material, um if they had gone, if they had kept it as Freddie Lowndes, it would have felt very, very different. And same thing with, with Alana. So I, I think that element, at least for me, not not being familiar with the source material, but just like the plot beats of it. Um, I, I feel like a character like the Red Dragon, who does have these very specific um, traits as a killer and this uh, behavior towards women, it would be a very different scene if the person in the wheelchair was a woman. Uh, this also, I think, um, can lead us in the direction of, of Reba in this sequence. Uh, and we'll be talking about the sequence quite a bit. I think there's still more to break down. Uh, she comes in, and the fact that Chilton, who is usually portrayed as a very self-absorbed character, um, the fact that he doesn't say anything and he has this very curious look about what's happening in front of him uh it i think that also for one uh helps play into this what we've been talking about in terms of really feeling the effect of the violence it's not 
uh, Chilton's being a dick and there's no way that we feel like he deserves this. You know, he's actually being a good guy and he's really quite pathetic in a sad and sympathetic way in, in this whole thing. Um, but Reba comes in and she and Dollar had have this encounter. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe what is it that's going on behind Chilton's eyes in those moments? Well, we, talk, we actually um, really thought a lot about this on uh, the Eat the Rootcast podcast. And we think it ultimately comes down to the fact that Chilton was very aware very quickly that this woman is blind. And that alone means that even if he got her attention, she can't help him. And he is still under the impression that he can silver tongue his way out of this. So there's no way, you know, he's also glued to a wheelchair. So there's no way he's getting up by himself. There's no way this woman is helping him. So he's more sitting there like, well, this is hopeless. And does he have a girlfriend? Because <laughs> that's interesting. I've loved the performance from Esparza in that scene yeah. uh, and in the just in the background of everything that's going on because he's just like, if his jaw could be on the ground, <laughs> it would be. Uh, I think it's such an interesting choice. Like you say, and, I'm, and I look forward to listening to Eat the Rude Cast once we finish recording. Um, I, you know, she's, she's blind and he's a incredibly powerful serial killer. The best thing that can happen is that maybe this pisses him off enough to just kill Chilton. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's the only, you know, right now, if he says nothing, even if he's not trying to protect Reba, um, which you could argue that he is, but even if he's not, um, that this would just piss him off because he's just uh, been given an order and he would have disobeyed it. Right. Uh, so, the, so it takes a lot of wherewithal on Chilton's part to just not instinctively say something or make his presence known, even, you know, subconsciously or unintentionally. Um, you could argue that uh, maybe he just wasn't hydrated that day. Cause you'd think <laughs> there should have been some other like things happening, bodily mm -hmm. responses that would tell her something else was wrong. Um, well, I, mean, anyway I, th I think she noticed something was going on. Mm-hmm. Because she does have that look to the corner. So she either hears Chilton or smells the sweat or smells the other panic. Mm -hmm. um, but she's not sure what's going on. She knows that D is sick. Mm -hmm. So she could just be being polite, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you say, I think he's also just completely fascinated. It's like, it's like he's the audience um, reading or watching the Red Dragon adaptation and going, so, okay, this is the serial killer thing we've seen before. We get the gist of it. Oh, he's got a girlfriend. A girl he's, yeah. he's more dimensionalized. There's more going on here. And when you compare that with the, the, the profile that he puts together, I'm curious what you guys think of that, um, the scene earlier, because the first thing we get from Chilton in that scene is what feels to me like a very pedestrian and, lazy assessment about why he doesn't like being called the tooth fairy um, mm -hmm. as opposed to he sees himself as a dragon literally um, but then everything else he's saying seems like it's very much in line with what's been yeah. presented so so he first seems ridiculous or just very 
again, pedestrian in his assessment. And then he seems very accurate through the rest of that conversation. So to, to he does have, you know, some level of insight into this, this guy. And so then to be presented with, there's this whole other world, um, that he wouldn't have even imagined could be possible. Um, I think he's also just very professionally curious as well. The the thing that he says at the end of that analysis, this is the child of a nightmare, is the the line that Will even turns his head and starts to consider, as yeah. if as if at that point Will hadn't even thought about the Dollarhide's childhood that. Uh, where this person might have come from originally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we've seen Chilton be a really good analyst in the past. Granted, he was misguided in where that was aimed, but he, he certainly understands the human mind. And so I like that you've pointed out that progression of it starts out very, oh, this is Chilton being Chilton, but actually he's very uh, tuned in to the kind of person that the Red Dragon is. I think it's also really fascinating scene because he starts out Chilton feeling like he's the flamboyant star of this article. You know, he sits, he poses, but he's not even having his picture taken. And he talks about it in these grandiose things. And then will continually one ups him to horrifyingly inaccurate ways. So I think, I think that's what actually hones Chilton in to real uh, psychological profiling because he sees Will taking him off the rails. It's like, no, well, I mean, there's legitimate things we could talk about instead of whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, definitely. And it, like you say, it um, it pushes him to sort of assert, especially out coming off of his uh, reaction with Hannibal and his decision <laughs> to, you know, present this very off-base analysis of Hannibal uh, for for Hannibal's benefit, sure, that's why he did it. Um, to to sort of prove to to Freddie and Jack and Will at least that no, I can also provide valuable insights. I'm valuable yeah. for more than just how you can use me for this article. Um, and to enrage this guy, I can. You want to enrage this guy? I can also enrage this guy with some truth. It's very much uh, a Frederick Chilton centric episode for me. Uh, the analysis that he provides, the confidence, but also uh, vulnerability that he exudes throughout the episode. It's the most fascinating part for me is when he wakes up in the chair and he's talking to Dollar Hyde and hasn't seen him yet. There, we pointed out little things in the script in, in the past. Chilton does not use, I think with the exception of maybe one out of all of those lines, maybe one or two, there are no contractions in his speech, which is something that we almost never hear. Contractions are almost always reserved for speech rather than when you're writing, maybe you will not use contractions, will not. See, I I just put myself wrong. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, he says, I hope to God I am not Burns. Uh, You do not need to scare me. And not just in the fact that this is spoken dialogue, but also uh, situation children's in at this point, you wouldn't think that this is the kind of speech that he would use. And I don't think that he's doing this consciously, but the what makes it more fascinating to me, the interesting dynamic is that it plays off so perfectly uh, Francis's speech, which is marred by what he feels is this uh, physical 
in abnormality that prevents him from being able to articulate anything, which isn't really the case because he articulates himself perfectly fine. You know, he does his speech patterns, uh, his exercises or whatever, but he still sounds intelligent when he speaks. But this is just another little way, I thought, that it it's a way to make them clash, um, maybe even subconsciously at that level. I thought that that much, and I don't even know if, because there were four writers attributed to this, who knows, maybe it went by unnoticed, but just listening to that, I thought that that was really interesting to see children enunciate those things. A quick note for those who aren't aware of this, and I was not aware of this for more, longer than I care to admit, um, when you're looking at writing, at writing credits, if it has the word and, it means the people work together as a team. If it has an ampersand, it means that that was a separate person. So when we have an episode like this, yes, there are four writers on it, but uh, Vlaming and I don't remember her last name. It's I don't have it in front of me. It's Angie something. Cause I saw, yeah, because I saw Brian Fuller tweet out, go Angie, <laughs> about it. Um, they wrote it, it together, and then Brian Fuller and Steve Lightfoot together um, you know, worked on it. So as opposed to four individual writers each taking their own pass, theoretically it should have been two teams of writers who were working together, uh, which I think would add credence to your 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 statement there, Sean, that, yeah. that that's an intentional choice by the writers um, rather than something that slipped through the cracks. And I, what, what I was noticing with it is that it when you the reason that sometimes in writing you don't use contractions is to give a sense of formality to it so he is showing deference and respect uh by doing he's sort of defaulting to um this level of formality with with his captor and also the the intonation we're getting from Asparza in the scene really and, and also the angles there's a lot of low angle shots that make him um look small as compared to the the dragon looming over him it really infantilized him i thought it was like a, like a kid um speaking to to a parent um and who and just not having the confidence to be more informal and relaxed and uh yeah, I, I noted that as well, and uh, it was very affecting. The, the the poor Chilton. You can see him give Dollarhide the idea to burn him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, I think worth mentioning on the um, the writing aspect is this episode, perhaps more than any other, has more scenes verbatim from the text. Uh, so you could pretty much credit thomas harris as a mm -hmm. co-writer on the episode and i was really surprised by how uh, um, accurate it is though i will note looking at the text at the moment that uh they use a contraction i hope to god i'm not burned in the text mm -hmm. mm. and the the strange part was that watching this and listening to that um there have been moments in these past, what is it now, four episodes, that there have been lines pulled where you can kind of feel it, and it doesn't yes. necessarily take you out of the episode, but it's something that you notice. And I try not to pay attention to it, because fuck it, but you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't help it sometimes. And this one felt so natural to what was happening on screen that even though a lot of them have been iconic, and Philip Seymour Hoffman has delivered those lines in the past, and that was a very strong performance. At the same time, this all felt very natural for this Chilton and, and this version of that sequence. And I, I was happy that I felt that way. 
There have been certain lines in the last couple episodes that have felt very awkward and forced where you can tell that it is a line of dialogue from the books because that yeah. is, that may be how that character speaks in the books, but that is not how that character speaks in the show. And the one that Im- jumps immediately to mind is the one with, Will, I've had it up to here with the Sons of Bitches. Sons of Bitches. Or whatever yeah. it is. It's just, yeah. that's, that is not Will Graham from the TV show. That did not work. I mean, Dancy tries but he, <laughs> it didn't work. I actually have a few of those in this episode. There's so certain things, uh, and not not to branch us completely away from this central uh, set piece, but while we're talking about the dialogue, um, I have some problems with this episode with some of the dialogue because the you pay you play you pay yeah. did not work <laughs> at all. It wasn't just that; it was also the the close-ups, the zoom-in close-ups that accompanied that that made it, it so cheesy. And it's so slow, and it, like the the way that he says it, it's not just the line; it's the line. Don't get me wrong, but it's also the delivery did not work for me. And this is something I very rarely say on this show, on this podcast about this show. Um, and the other one, um, you know, when it, when it comes back, it's it's just as awkward. I think when Anderson is saying it, um, the other one that stood out like a glaring uh, red thumb. Uh, I assume this is a, a quote because otherwise it's a stupid thing to have Will say is Hannibal in love with me because I'm sorry. That's like early season two. Will that is not post like sitting in front of the primavera having that heart to heart with Hannibal will that is not pro post Hannibal turns himself in just so that he can kind of maybe see me one day. Will I thought it was ridiculous that he would have that question. At this point, I agree in the sense that um, he should have already understood the nature of their relationship. Uh, as far as I know, I don't recall that being from the text, but I've not read. It is uh, not. Yeah. Uh, we, okay. we actually did some looking into the love stuff, and it seems like the love references are sort of cribbed from the discussion of whether or not Hannibal is in love with Clarice Starling. Okay. And uh, does he ache and and that stuff? Um, I we were we were told by our wonderful fact checker fan that it is direct from Hannibal, and I haven't been able to find it, but it's hard to search for that stuff. So yeah. Uh, but no, Will Graham has no thoughts of Hannibal Lecter being in love with him in the book Red Dragon. I promise you that. <laughs> okay. None well- at all. Well, it, it, that being a, um, something that was originally in relation to Clarice and then given here to Will, I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, do you guys have – like, Cooper, what do you think about that? I love that the in, in two scenes, right after one another, we get two common uh, questions from the audience. Uh, is Hannibal in love with Will? And uh, well, there's one other in the immediate next scene. Oh, is Hannibal the devil? So, like, in, in the first scene, he asks if he's in love with him, and then Jack says that, Hannibal, you're the devil. Yeah. So, it, it's I, I think it, it may be more a nod to the fans than Will just being dense, or Will is actually wondering, does Hannibal love me, or, are we, or is he obsessed with me? It might be more that. I guess. I don't know. It, it just was... It kind of killed that whole scene for me. Mm. Uh, sounds like it was much more uh, glaring to me than it was to, to you guys. The distinction, I think, between being in love and obsession 
is a good one. Um, but I, I can definitely see where you're coming from, Kate. I think that the the inquiry itself was fine. It was just the, the, the nature and the detail of the question. It just needed to be worded differently so that it, it made sense. Because, yeah, we, we do expect Will to have a certain understanding of their relationship. Um, so I, I, I guess I could see it both ways in that case. Fair enough. Uh, did we? Did you guys have other thoughts on that central set piece? Did you want to return to that, or shall we talk about some of these other elements, like like with Bedelia or with Jack? Or I, I know you both said it already. I don't know if I emphasized it enough, but um, this in a series that features just incredible supporting turns from really respectable actors and actresses, um, I. I was thoroughly impressed by what Rallis Barza did in this. And that's, that yeah. takes a lot, especially when you're alongside somebody who's doing just a great, great interpretation, very intimidating and uh, anxiety-inducing Francis Dollarhide. The fact that Children was able to feel like the prominent character in this episode, I think, is a real testament to what Esparza does for this series. Yeah, definitely. My notes are almost all sparse. And then it's like, Richard Armitage <laughs> is really good. By the way, a quick <laughs> a, a quick uh, mention. Thank you to our listeners who corrected me on the pronunciation of Armitage. Uh, they, at at, at Calmacon, they were called the, I think it was Martha De Laurentiis said Armitage. Uh, so I was like, oh, that's how you say it. But no, uh, there's plenty of YouTube videos of him like say, thanking people for actually saying his name right as Armitage. So... <laughs> Well, I like how when you hear people uh, who work on the show talking about Mass Mickelson, some of them say Mads. Yeah, a bunch of them so, do. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of them do. Actors, and, and writers, directors. Would either know better or maybe he doesn't care. I don't know. Yeah, yep. I, just because we're talking about this, just very brief tangent. Uh, do either of you know how to say the first name of the actress from Atonement, the Irish actress? From the movie Atonement? Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, Sirsa, no, short, Sirsa Ronan, something like that? I only got this because there was a great Irish film released recently called uh, Song of the Sea. The name is pronounced Sersha. Sersha, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I need to see so, Song of the Sea. So I'm sure Mickelson will receive less grief than she does <laughs> for that name. Fair um, enough. But well, yeah. he's going to be in Star Wars, so he's going to be a household name. It better be. I thought Bond was going to make him a household name, and then it didn't. But then that let us get Hannibal, so you know, yeah, I'm good with it. it. And yeah. everyone just got excited. Hey, it's Le Chief. It's Le Chief. <laughs> um, we just, uh, I just, uh, very tangential. I just rewatched mm -hmm. uh, Casino Royale because Ophelia, my, my partner, had never seen it. And it's delightful to see both um, Hannibal and uh, Inspector Pazzi in the same room from different universes. <laughs> Nice. Because Giancarlo will... Giannini is uh, is in in the room when uh, Mass Mickelson is playing poker. There you go. And Giancarlo Giannini was uh, Inspector Pazzi in the Ridley Scott film. Uh, Cooper, you mentioned that there were two back-to-back -back scenes in which we were given uh, questions that the audience is constantly asking while watching mm -hmm. this series. Uh, I also noticed two those two scenes specifically um, having two very interesting analogies. We kind of talked about the second one a little bit, but this idea of uh, Hannibal being the devil, the, the whole comparison here is that Will is the lamb, Jack is God, and Hannibal uh, is referred to as the devil, which is 
the dragon in this case, right? He calls it, Jack calls him the dragon. He does, and it's weird. And it's weird specifically because of the title of the episode. The number of the beast is 666. The name of that painting is the dragon standing before the devil. And I I love that that that's the painting because when we first see the dragon in Hannibal's office, Hannibal is in the foreground, the back of his head. So it's it's a, a mirror of that painting. So the devil is obviously not the dragon. I think this sort of just shows Jack doesn't understand. But Hannibal doesn't correct him. No, because he's more busy making the point that Jack is a manipulative god. The kind that would drop a church on Will. Well, and also Jack is very... Jack is watching this show. He's very interested in the the thread of the three characters over the entire run. Uh, Whereas, uh, and so he doesn't have space for Dollar Hyde in his analogy. Um, Whereas Hannibal is looking at it differently. I love the delivery uh, from from Fishburne of God the Devil and the Great Red Dragon. I thought that was really, it was a nice line. It was well delivered. Um, But yeah, bringing, you know, this... This notion of Will as the lamb, as the sacrificial lamb, is interesting, especially with the finale being titled The Wrath of the Lamb, which is not one of the paintings, as I understand it. It is not. Yeah, and, yeah, making Will the lamb, that's really well, underselling. Will is not the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. Will is Jesus in this uh, analogy. If we want to look at Revelations, which is what we're doing, mm-hmm. Will is the Lamb of God who rises and destroys the sinners of the world. That is the wrath of the Lamb in the book of Revelations. Mm. Ah. Okay. That's... Because Jesus, when he comes back in the book of Revelations, he's a fucking badass. <laughs> he's like, uh, you know, he's died, he's come back, he's died yes. again. He's come, When he comes back, he's Old Testament, basically, is yes, what you're saying. Exactly. He comes in and starts some shit. And that's what the lamb is about to do, which makes me terrified what they're going to do to Will in the finale. You know, I had a a slightly different reading of that. I mean, that's absolutely correct. But I guess now, just as an alternative, um, you can add an extra layer to it that this is also William Blake's The Lamb. We had a reference in an earlier episode, uh, Hannibal, as he's watching Dollarhide become the dragon. I guess we exchange dragon for tiger in this case, but it's, you know, it's dragon, dragon burning bright, et cetera. And then the question is, did he who make the lamb make thee? Which means you can twist that around so that it, now we're asking, is Jack responsible for things that maybe he is not even aware of? We understand that Jack um, potentially made Will into what he is. He brought him into this series, basically, and pushed him down this path. And now we have to wonder how complicit is Jack and if you follow the analogy, which you can, uh, and we will, because this is this is our design. Uh, <laughs> is he somewhat responsible for Hannibal Lecter as well? Which is not a question that we need to answer, but I'm just uh, I think that that's another framing device that you can look at that uh, discussion and, and kind of examine that. Well, if nothing else, he didn't kill him. That's true. Yeah, could have when he could have. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other analogy, which occurs in the scene previous to that, is the Bluebeard 
folk tale. Oh, Kate, yes. did, did you look up this at all, Kate? Oh no, I'm very familiar with. Uh, I I I um, my mom read to myself and my siblings when we were kids uh, before we go to bed every night, and one of the fairy tales were common in that. So I'm very <laughs> I'm very familiar with Bluebeard. And the story of Bluebeard is perfect bedtime reading. Of yeah. course. Well, see, that's what worked out great because we didn't want to go to sleep. So we'd be like, no, read some more. Build our attention span over the course of years. You know, it worked out. But yeah. For listeners who have not gone to look it up yet, um, can you break it down for us? Bluebeard is, uh, is a pirate uh, who takes uh, a bride and take you know takes her to the castle or the, her beautiful home where they will live. Um, and it's everything's wonderful and great uh and he just says okay just one rule just don't go in this room this lock just just don't go in this room this door and you're fine everything's great and she can't help herself eventually uh she does open the door and in there are the skeletons of all his previous wives uh (laughs) and it doesn't end well that's that's at least that's my memory of bluebeard well, funny, uh, my memory of Bluebeard is she finds the heads of the wives. But I, I know Bluebeard is not a pirate. Oh, what, what is He's Bluebeard? an aristocrat. He's an aristocrat. Yeah. Ah, Blackbeard is a pirate. Black, well, Blackbeard is also a pirate. Yeah. The, that was the version that, that uh, I grew up with. But uh, yeah, that makes more sense, maybe. Because yeah. he would be gone for long stretches of time. And that's why she was he exploring would, yes. the house. But yes, okay. Anything else I'm missing? Uh, no, no, that's, that's it. It's one of those... Um, uh, you know, don't eat the apple stories. It's a, it's a, you can do anything you want except this. So that's naturally what you want to do. Like, Will, you can do anything you want except talk to Hannibal. So, of course, he goes to talk to Hannibal. And I do, I do th- find a flaw at the center of this, however, which is uh, the, the, the moral of the story is don't look at in the door and stay married to the murderous crazy person. <laughs> Yeah, that seems to be the moral. But it, but it is a good analogy, and I really like that Bedelia is the one who brings it up. And that she would prefer to be the last? Yes. <laughs> it's certainly fun to think about both of them as wives of Hannibal. Uh, what I especially like about it <laughs> in this context is uh, that the, the moral has a lot to do with curiosity, and being curious has been a huge part of what has driven Hannibal and various characters throughout this series and so i think that it, it fits even better because of that well Absolutely. and then another part of that story and that that idea the concept is that by telling by telling her that she can't she's not allowed that he doesn't want her to do this one thing that seem without giving any explanation without giving a reason but it's just saying just don't do this one thing uh what level of culpability does blackbeard have if he had just not mentioned it and the door was just locked, it wouldn't have, you know, but instead he specifically says, just don't do the, you know, just don't eat from this tree. You know, just, yeah. so, so then there's that question of, uh, you know, again, observation, participation, you know, what level of culpability does Blackbeard have in this analogy? Yep. So that will take us to the recurring segments for this podcast. And we'll begin, of course, with Kate's classical corners. Okay. What well, can you tell us about the scoring and the soundtrack in the number of the beast is six, six, six. Unfortunately, it won't include Iron Maiden, which is sad. But no, go for it anyway. No Iron Maiden, though. Next week we are getting some Susie Sue, so there will be, you know, non-classical 
song, at least one non- non-classical song next week. Uh, the There's one classical piece featured in this episode, and that is the first movement of Mozart's Piano Quartet Number no. 1 in G minor, Kirkel 478. Um, this is the scoring as... The, the, the way I describe it in my post over at Sound on Sight is that Hannibal gets fan mail. Uh, so... <laughs> This was incredibly jarring to me. This The piece itself is uh, one of the earliest uh, compositions for piano quartet, or most prominent, I should say, uh, early compositions for piano quartet. That means that instead of a string quartet with two violins, a viola, a viola and a cello, you have um, a piano, a violin, a viola, and a cello. Um, and so, you know, it's more common to get a string quartet or to get a, qu- a piano quintet where you have a regular string quartet and you add a piano to it. Um, but it, it was, it's, Piano Quartet Number no. One, so obviously it's the first one that Mozart composed as well. It was considered very, very challenging. Um, it was theoret- It was commissioned by a publisher to be uh, music for amateurs to perform in their salons, you know, because what else are you going to do um, on on a long weekend? And uh, it was considered uh, it was beautiful music, but too hard for for the normies, basically. Uh, so. It, it, it's it's an interesting factoid about the piece. I don't think it particularly relates to this specific episode. I think they chose it because it's ominous sounding. It's minor. It's a very powerful opening, having everybody in unison uh, before branching, you know, then the little piano solo, then back in unison before branching into more um, polyphonic structure and more counter melodies and everything. Um, but it was very, very jarring to me because the rest of the scoring, uh, the, the sequence with Chilton and with uh, Dollarhide has some melodic flourishes in it. There'd be like a, a brief line of, of clarinet or, or strings or, you know, some other, you know, other little motives, but there aren't full on melodies through sequences in this scoring and really in most of Hannibal's scoring. Um, so to go from the, you know, having Chilton have his face ripped off by by Dollar Hyde, which is very sparsely scored, and really the main element, like I said earlier, is Chilton's screams to this really thick sound of of these four instruments in unison, um, this re- really bold, rich, melodic, you know, minor but very melodic, you know, line. Uh, was is jarring to begin with, but you're also going from like screams, very naturalistic to very composed, very structured, very you know thought out, and then you go from the dark room of uh, of the house to this very brightly lit mail room, and because of there's all these contrasts, it seems like the music doesn't shouldn't go with. You know, if you want to hear like dun, 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 as the music <laughs> goes down a conveyor, the piece of mail goes down the conveyor belt, it I almost started laughing. Yeah, I don't know if that was the intent. Um, because when you listen, and also as a violinist, when I hear that piece, I think of, uh, if I was playing it or if I was watching it be performed, the expressions on all the performers would be very serious. It'd be very intense. It's a very intense beginning. And so to have that very intense beginning of the piece with such innocuous, uh, um, yeah, just such a, a straightforward, you know, just a bright light in a white, you know, just an envelope like that was, it was jarring for me when Alana walks the mail into Hannibal and we've got like the paneling and everything and that, and we see Hannibal there and everything that fit a lot better. So I don't know if they were intentionally going for it to be kind of funny. Um, I would like to hear your guys thoughts on that. Uh, but that was kind of jarring. So it was, I liked it more later once Alana and Hannibal were in the scene than when it first appeared, especially coming off a commercial break. Um, yeah, it was kind of weird. What did you guys think about that? I thought it was delightful. 
Okay. And, and I thought it tied in so wonderfully to probably my favorite moment in the entire series where Hannibal slurps up a lip. <laughs> it, it's, it's unbelievably silly and fun. And I, I like what it's implying. It's like this guy is a prisoner, but look at all the effort we're going through for him. He even gets his mail delivered by the head of the institution. That's, that's Hannibal. I know we're, we're not there yet to, to talk about the other things, but just to, on that scene and why it's so good. It's also Mickelson's, it's so perfect. His just yeah. smug fucking satisfaction oh, yeah. after he's like, well, you don't need both of them, do you? You can get everything you need from just the one of them. And he's just smiling to himself, looking around, waiting for somebody to laugh or applaud. It has put him in very good humor. Yeah, that I really enjoy that part of the scene. Uh, what comes later? I really enjoy that. And I like what, how you can see in Mickelson's performance when he decides he's going to eat one of them. Because he gets this little smirk on his face while he's looking <laughs> at Alana. He's like, yes. I'm, this is what I'm going to do right now. <laughs> and we don't... Yeah. We, yeah. You're not going to shove your hand in here to stop me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's delightful. Um, but yeah, so I guess for me, I I can't disconnect from what how I would be performing this or how I would be what I would expect. What, you know, I, the, that opening to me is serious. And so it, it was off putting to have it uh, used so comedically or so sillily at the very, you know, but it does set the tone for the scene, like you guys said. Um, so that's the one classical piece. Um, the rest of the scoring is, for the most part, very spare. Um, I really, you know, the, the main thing I keyed into as a theme of the scoring of this episode is the way that Reitzel has uh, transformed the scoring for the dragon. When we first meet the dragon in The Great Red Dragon, it's this really bombastic layered percussive, percussive scoring. It's really fabulous. I love it. Um, that is the dragon as a instinctual beast driven by this percussion, by this energy. He's not thinking, he's not talking, he's not quite sure what he is yet. Um, that's that again, that's, that's the dragon driven by instinct and driven by the phase of the moon. This is the dragon sitting back on his stack of gold sipping a snifter and having a conversation. Uh, it's a very m different dragon. This is um, intellectual, philosophical. Uh, and so instead of having every something driven by instinct and out of control, everything, it's very controlled. Instead, we get the just a slight, you know, a low bass, a rumble of the bass, and maybe up a half step and then back down. Um, and it goes throughout the Chilton scene, the, the, the Dollar Hide scenes, but also whenever they discuss Dollar Hide. So when we get uh, Will and, um, and Alana and uh, Jack talking about Dollar Hide, it'll come in. Or when we get the scene with Freddy, it'll come in. So I thought, I think it's really interesting the way that that scoring for the dragon has really shifted from what. Reitzel first presents in episode eight through to the drier, more wood-based, percussive, lighter sound that we get with uh, the, and the woman clothed in sun. Mm. Yes. And, uh, and, and when, when Dollarhide throws Will out of the elevator through to here, it's again, it's a very different sound, but it, it is connected when, when, when Dollarhide gets upset with Chilton or goes toward to like touches, touch him, the percussion comes in more. And when he gets upset after Reba's left 
is you know building to you owe me awe um the percussion uh again comes in more aggressively there but this is a far cry from the scoring we were getting in episode eight and i, I really enjoyed enjoyed that i could i could just visualize like the you know smog um deciding if he's gonna eat bilbo um, with the way the the very patient scoring he's taking his time in in this scene with Chilton and so there's no rush to the scoring either um there are some other scenes I really like the scoring of the scene with uh with with Freddie uh for them because the there's these different instruments that sort of weave together kind of going back and forth um between will and and Chilton and they come together then at the end for the photo uh there's there are a couple other scenes where I really enjoyed the music as well but those are the ones that that I guess stood out to me the most. Uh, we get a lot, again, we get some of these different scenes uh, that have more melody. Chilton gets more melody. The, the cello comes in, the, the uh, clarinet comes in. There's a little flourish that sounds like the beginning of Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, but it's in the clarinet, which I associate personally with Chilton at least, rather than in the flute. And that's in the Hannibal and Chilton scene from earlier. As he throws the magazine in, because he's an idiot. Um, yeah. that, that's totally, it's, uh, Chekhov's magazine uh, we get that little bit of a uh, line um, in the clarinet so there's a lot of really neat scoring here but I, I enjoy that it's not oppressive it's not overwhelming it's very a very different approach than say we got in season two um, to when everything was going on with Will um, but yeah you can look for, uh, up for my post at Sound on Sight uh, look, discussing the music to get into more of the scenes but those are the the, the, the elements that really um, stood out to me this this week uh, do you guys have any thoughts on on the that change in the scoring for the dragon well i actually was looking forward to listening to your podcast to hear you talk about the change <laughs> because i think uh what we're seeing in the first few episodes is the often bloody and violent birth of an elegant creature and the dragon is an elegant creature and we see that in everything that uh, Richard Armitage does in this episode, in the way he moves, in the way he crawls across that desk, in the way he looms over um, Chilton. And this Dollaride, this is no longer Dollaride. And it's no longer the dragon trying to free itself from the cocoon of a lowly mortal. Now it's free. Yeah. And I thought that's why the music took on a new sort of elegance and it wasn't jerky and it wasn't violent and it wasn't discordant anymore. Well, and that's why when Reba shows up, it changes yeah. as, as we, as dollar Hyde comes back out, it changes and you get piano scoring for them again. It's not the romantic Debussy inspired scoring of the tiger scene, but it's still piano for the two of them. Um, and it's piano. And then the bass is there as well, kind of in the background, uh, you know, just because he's, Really, he's he's sort of the dragon with his dollar hide suit on, as opposed to mm -hmm. vice versa. Any thoughts on all, yeah. on all of this, Sean? I, I actually, and I thought that I've been paying more attention to this because we've been doing music discussions this entire time, but I didn't even notice the, the transition there and the scoring for him. But and, uh, it makes sense what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and it's also just the product of they're talking more <laughs> as opposed to he's, you know, right, he was exactly. wordless yeah. in his first episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, that'll take us to uh, the second of our recurring segments, the devil in the details where we talk about uh, some of the other small perhaps things in the episode I haven't addressed yet. I'll begin by saying that I know 
Freddie is a piece of shit, and that we're supposed to recognize that, but be a little bit too soon for the Tooth Fairy is a one night stand t shirts. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe just a little bit. Um, but uh, Cooper, little things for you. Oh, I, I have so many in this episode. Um, the, the number one thing that stood out is actually a, a little disappointment at the fact that they were being so faithful to the text and they left out my favorite line from Dollaride's Do You See Speech, which is, You are a slug in the afterbirth. Ah, they and said you are a slug, but not afterbirth. Yeah. yeah. No, an ant in the afterbirth. I'm sorry. They said you're a slug in the sand in, the, in this episode. Um, I was disappointed, but it was well, still amazing. That's got to be a connection to Snailed It, right? Hashtag Snailed It. <laughs> all the snails yeah, from yeah. earlier this season. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. We, we figured they used up all their snail quota uh-huh. on the first half of the season. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I actually don't have very many details. Um, cause so I look forward to you rattling off, uh, for us, Cooper. The first one, I, I okay. have a couple. The first one though, that I have is I gotta say the lady suits have been fantastic. Not to a uh, friend of the show, Emma, uh, in her fabulous lady suit watch 2015. Um, however, <laughs> I, I love her ensemble later in the episode, but her first suit is surprisingly muted. It's like, uh, it's like this sort of, sort of like pinkish color. If I'm remembering correctly, it's a plaid. Um, but or, or Twill or I, I don't, this is why I don't talk about the clothes that specifically, <laughs> but it, when she's had all these reds and very, uh, crisp and very bold colors as they're talking at the beginning of this episode and she is basically encouraging them to use Chilton, who is their fool. Um, yes. she is, the color is muddier. So she's not as pure and crisp uh, uh, and bold of a color. It's more, uh, it's it's murkier, and and the lines of the of the suit like the, it doesn't look as crisp. It looks more uh, rounded, uh, more like she's receding and pulling back. Which wouldn't you? <laughs> uh, my next one is actually a sound design thing uh, when. Dollar Hyde's on his way to go after children. He's, this is just a very short scene of him driving the car. But it, I had to listen a couple of times, and it is actually the car rumbling. But it sounds so much like a growling that it did force me to, to re-listen to it. And it, I really like that just because this is him upset and, you know, moments before pouncing and striking. And so I thought that that worked really well. Oh, yeah, and I'm sure there's some bass in there, too, for the dragon. Yeah. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I have the maxi pad blindfold, which, as I un understand it, is a reference to the source material. It is. Which is delightful. Jack I, pops his collar, <laughs> when there, or his collar is popped, I should say, when he's walking around with Will, which is fun. Uh, I like that Chilton <laughs> is all in gray, but he's got red leather gloves, because of course he does, because he's Chilton. Um, and uh, I also really, in that scene, I really like the physicality of him getting nabbed, because the score, like, it starts as there's, like, this, like, like, really steady driving kind of drum. Um, so you think it's, we're about to get into like a chase scene or something and just, no, just, he's just going to yeah, get, there's almost break. like a, yeah, exactly. It's almost like a, Ooh, kind of like <laughs> loosen the collar, kind of like ridiculous wink to the camera. Uh, the way that he's pulled out, I think Aspars is fun in his performance there, but also just like the staging of that I thought was really effective. Um, I, I love uh, that 
the first suggestion from Freddie Lowndes is that she wants Will in a robe by the desk. <laughs> and that is what the picture is. Uh, w- there is a picture of Will in a robe by the desk in the novel. I figured that was the f- yeah, a nod to the fangirls. No, that's, that's actually uh, uh, from the novel. Um, I love that Chilton's next two books are Blood and Chocolate and The Dragon Slayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you guys have messed with the way I watch this show now because you mentioned the way dialogue is delivered. Sean broke you, too, because he broke yeah. me. And yes. this, this episode has perhaps the most egregious one I've heard in the whole series. Uh, when they're talking about uh, Chilton wanted his face to be recognized and now he doesn't have one. And Will just says, damned if I'll feel. <laughs> I mean, that's not even a complete sentence. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. The last one I have is, uh, you mentioned the sound design, Sean. I love the sound effect of Hannibal eating the, the, it's, the lip. Yeah. It's just uh, the timing of it. The, Delightful. Like, it's wonderful, yeah. It, it is far more pithy than we should be after the horrifying moment we just witnessed. And, and in that regard, we kind of need something like that. So yeah. it, it definitely works. I got three more here. Uh, one of them is also a question. In Hannibal's conversation with Shilton, he says, fate has a habit of not letting us choose our own endings. And it, it felt very much like this is a repeat line, but I went back through my reviews and I couldn't find it. Is Is that lifted from somewhere else or is does that just sound so Hannibal that I thought that I think it may sound so Hannibal I I can always do the quick search if you'd like uh go for it shortly and if you don't come up with anything then then that's fine but yeah fate has a habit of not letting us choose our own endings it's just that it sounded so familiar but that might just be because we've been obsessing over the show for three years um <laughs> a couple other ones the during the the central piece a it's always nice to get into the head of people who are usually inaccessible. And as you were talking about uh, the transformation of the, the dragon in and how it's mirrored in the scoring, it seems like now he's more confident and comfortable with who he is. And so when he goes off starting to talk about uh, when he's worried about being considered insane, he gives a little bit more of his worldview. And I know it's late in the season and we're most likely just going to have one more episode with him, but uh, just him talking about that he has seen more than somebody like Sheldon and that he has pushed the world further. I think that that second line in particular yeah. uh, is really interesting to consider through his perspective. In what ways uh, does he think that he's pushing the world further and, and what does that mean uh, based on his own definition? The, the last one that I had was another line of dialogue. <clears throat> And this is just, if you're at all interested uh, in some of the Hannibalness of this, uh, I took this line and kind of ran with it and uh, for my review over at TV Overmind. And so if you want to uh, read more about that, you can. But the line is, touch gives the world an emotional context. The touch of others uh, makes us who we are. It builds trust. And just the ways in which sensory detail have applied to this series in the past. Sight, obviously, is the biggest one, I think. Uh, and in this episode as well, of course, do you see? Um, but it, it was interesting going more into touch and how that sense is used throughout the series to kind of convey meaning. So if you're all interested in that, you can check out the review. But those are my details. Uh, Cooper, any more you want to? I've got two more. Uh, one, I love Freddie uh, 
sort of weak jibe at will. I bet you're a small mm-hmm. about the shirt. And the most one of the most affecting moments in the episode was when Dollaride puts his hand on Chilton's shoulder and it's not menacing. It looks comforting. And he and he does the I'll get you a blanket. And when he puts the blanket over his shoulders, he puts both hands on his shoulders in a it's okay. You're going to be changed, but that's beautiful. Wait. Yeah, no, it's very effective. Yeah. <laughs> really unsettling. Very unsettling. Yes, that's that's the right word for it. Uh, were there any other like scenes that we want to quickly mention? You said you talked about touch, Sean. Obviously, we haven't even mentioned Dollarhide scratching up his back. Yeah, or, that was um, the um, with we you know, if we want. I don't know if we want to get into what um with bedelia and uh, at the top and this notion of um yeah i, I really liked her, anderson's performance when she was talking about uh bedelia, <laughs> hannibal killing her and you know the right you know, circumstances the way that she was haughty and proud <laughs> but also <laughs> terrified at the same time was oh really... see i read it as aroused interesting yeah uh yeah. and and uh the, the two ladies uh did too so i'm i'm not sure maybe it's, we have vastly different erotic interpretations of it very different <laughs> lenses i would say <laughs> through which we are we're viewing mm-hmm. um yeah um the um i mean what level of culpability do you guys give will in what happens to um to chilton i actually think that this is uh an event where he's a little bit unaware of what he's doing. So maybe the culpability isn't as high as some other people uh, might think that it is. But the fact that he is unaware also means that he's not the will that he used to be. He's not, you know, pure empathy will, which would have, is a person who would have otherwise uh, anticipated what was going to happen and would have done something differently. Uh, but his reaction afterwards, which we mentioned earlier, I, I sense such complete guilt in that sequence, and especially uh, in the transition, which was another uh, key part of my discussion and my review, uh, was how it's seen uh, Dollarhide touch or bite uh, and take off part of, of children was the thing. It, it's like he needed to feel something like that uh, and then kind of start touching himself as you notice the transition from that scene watching the video into uh the second session with bedelia he's like grasping his own hand and running it along his arm um which i thought was a a very interesting acting decision if not if it wasn't put in the script um but it was that that feeling of it that really affected me and so i think that even if there was a little bit more culpability than we would have liked to have believed we see that he's affected by it afterwards. And so it, it still feels like it. we have Will Graham. It's just that that was a mistake that he made. And here's the wondrousness of this show, because I read it as he is throwing, he just, just because of his family, he needs to throw this in another direction. And it's a desperate act that he almost doesn't realize he's doing. But I, feel, I find his breakdown to be the recognition of the horror 
of how bad it actually was. I think that I think I feel like will this will is so terrified of anything more happening to his family and to his life and realizes he's spiraling that he knows Chilton has bodyguards and escorts. So if the dragon comes, maybe they'll get him and it doesn't put him at risk in this case. And certainly like, you know, Sean, like you had said that he's off his game because mm-hmm. he isn't seeing all the eventualities or the potentialities, I guess. And the fact that we see Molly as the woman clothed in sun, uh, at the beginning of the episode certainly underlines that import. I, you know, I love that this is the kind of show that's going to pay her to be in an episode yeah. for that shot. And it's so much more, it's, it's also like they went out of their way to be like, in case you didn't notice the previous time we replaced her with the victim, it's definitely <laughs> her this time. Um, yeah, that's, that is interesting. And I, you know, I, it's one of those things I think I'm somewhere in between the two of you guys. Um, I, I agree that I don't think he's intentionally doing it. Um, it almost feels like it's reflexive when he, you know, invites, when he invites Chilton to get his picture taken, um, which is really what seals it. Uh, I don't know that he, his expression and his, the the delivery of that line doesn't feel guilt ridden. Like I think it would be if he knew what he was doing, what he was putting into motion. Um, and he does seem very focused on the fact that this could get him killed. Um, that's where all their attention is. And I think uh, if Will was fully aware or realized what his behavior and his um, the motion of his hand on, on Chilton's back was going to put into action, he would be less concerned in going over every step of what he's going to do when Dollarhead comes for him. Mm-hmm. But I think we're all right, and that's why we like this show so much. <laughs> well, it's a great place to end the discussion this week, I think. And ended up being a really good one being improv right go team go team go team uh all right and we okay now we'll be back next week to talk about season three episode 13 the season finale uh the wrath of the lamb uh but thank you for listeners for tuning in of course i also forgot to mention up at the top um uh, i was up on again related to the maelstrom of crap that made us get this out so late uh i've been away up in portland uh, for about the last week, and I was at a music festival there wearing my Hannibal hoodie. Got a compliment from somebody. There are two fans of the show there, so nice. Hooray! Um, I also know that we have some listeners up in Portland as well, so that'd be kind of weird actually if if they were those people. So <laughs> if you're listening, let me know, and uh, we'll retroactively celebrate about that. Um, but. Uh, and again, thanks to, to Cooper for coming on, especially on, on short notice. Uh, anything that you'd like to plug online uh, for listeners? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Cooper S. Beckett, um, CooperSBeckett.com. I'm a sex educator as well as uh, podcast host and all-around geek. Follow my podcast at Eat the Rudecast. Download at EatTheRudecast.com. And I just got a book on Audible, which is kind of cool. Very cool. And uh, <laughs> it's it's about sex and non-monogamy, but it's funny. So, uh, you know, if you're at all curious, you can go to audible.mylotss.com. It's called My Life on the Swing Set, Adventures in Swinging and Polyamory. And Kate, anything that you'd like to plug for listeners? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, those who follow the goings-on on the site know that big changes 
are coming. So just hit me on Twitter <laughs> at the Televerse. It's the, it's the easiest way. Um, and we could talk a little bit more about that next week, but until then, soundonsite.org. Of course, my, I have writing up up at the AV club as well. You can go check out, uh, you know, my reviews from earlier in the season or earlier in the year over there. Um, and yeah, on Twitter. And you can find my written reviews of Hannibal over at tvovermind.com. I also did my final film review for one of the local magazines here, the VC Reporter. Um, and if any of you have any interest in David Foster Wallace or the film The End of the Tour, which is very, very good, uh, you can check out my final review of that final because I will be moving to England very soon and they have different release dates for films and so I can no longer keep that job. But... I can keep doing TV stuff, so that's good. Hooray. Um, But, yeah, that's it for this week. Uh, Like I said, we're back next week, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design.